Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, as always, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host and co-GM. GM's as good as any for this episode, McGill. And it is episode 170, recorded on... The 21st of November, 2023. Um, and uh, I recently had COVID. So that's what's new with me. Um, that's brutal. You know, I, I've no since I've had COVID, a weird thing that I've kind of noticed is that um, when I... I've noticed it when I run games, when I, like, GM. So I noticed it when I was running Teeth, and I noticed it when I was running my own World of Darkness game yesterday. But now I'm also noticing it now when I do this, is it's like my tongue feels different in my mouth. Like, it's... Like, specifically when you're orating? Yeah, I guess. Like, it's not just during everyday it's conversation, like my, it's specifically when you're leading a conversation? Yeah, it's like, I only notice it when I'm, like, yeah, when I'm in this position of, like, I'm on the mic and I'm I'm talking at the t at the computer. Um, it's like my my tongue tends to rub up against my teeth more. It's, it's weird. <laughs> you think that's because of COVID, though? It's just something that is, I've only noticed since COVID. The effects of COVID-19 on role-playing gamers uh, have, has not really been studied that extensively. This could be uh, a whole new branch of science just for uh, COVID research. I mean, what's funny is, like, I've, I haven't really had the cough at all. Like, I've had, like, I've, I've, like, coughed up phlegm, but I haven't had, like, a big hacking cough. And um, really... The main thing for me was, like, when it hit me, I just had, like, this terrible, like, headache, and I had very powerful fever. Um, anyways, uh, yeah, so I've had COVID, and... Um, I, I, gotta, I gotta ask a couple more questions before we move on with this, though. Uh, and this one, uh, you might be annoyed with me about, our listeners might be annoyed with me about, but are we sure that this sensation in your tongue... Uh, this isn't just a case like, you know, when somebody goes like, you're now breathing manually or that kind of thing. It's, it's not just that you're becoming aware that you're having to speak more than usual or more than you have been. Maybe. I don't know. That's I guess that's a something that I wouldn't necessarily be aware of, but maybe. You know the whole you're breathing manually thing, right? No, I don't think so. Well, Tom, now that I've drawn your attention to it, you are aware of your breathing. You are you are now thinking about your breathing instead of just letting your body take care of it. I am now that you told me you, I am. <laughs> it's exactly it. And it's this, the same with blinking. Now you're aware of your blinking. You're too aware of it. Your body's not doing it automatically anymore. So my question is just like, could it be that it's not necessarily the COVID that's making your tongue feel funny when you DM, but instead uh, your, your whole, like your lungs and your mouth and all that felt crappy and you probably didn't talk as much for a good long time. Now that you're back on the mic, you're more aware of 
what your tongue is doing in your mouth? I, I think, I don't know. I'm maybe, but I, that's not what it feels like anyway, but I'm not sure. Um, is your tongue getting bigger? <laughs> that's kind of what it feels like is like i wondered i wondered if it, if like my tongue was like swollen or something but oh wow um yeah it's uh did you lose your sense of of taste i mean uh, a flavor <laughs> um not like like so like my dad has had it way worse than me and um his sense of taste got all messed up mine was like maybe messed up for like a day and i didn't lose it it's just things tasted weird hmm strange well uh sounds like you're on the mend i'm glad about oh that. yeah i i did a i got a negative test today actually oh that's great yeah so theoretically I, i'm told you're supposed to do two subsequently in a row but uh you know so far so good well i'm glad to hear that feel better yeah um yeah i, I feel mostly all right i mean i ran a game of uh, world of darkness yesterday you ran a great game of teeth had a lot of fun in that session oh thank you very much so that's that's a vote of confidence as well when we get over to my side of the podcast, I'd like to actually talk to you a bit about teeth. You know, I feel like this this game of teeth has been like this background thing on the pod. We never really put the spotlight on it. We just sort of mention it in passing. Yeah, um, I think occasionally it has come up as a spotlight point. But um, yeah, uh, um, what what do you want to say about it? I mean... I'm down to talk about. Well, do you want right to, you know, the what I'm bringing to the show this time uh, is is sort of two separate things. It's like a stop at our good old tavern for some discussion around the table, and then also I have a new RPG that I want to do a little overview of. Um, but do we want to do like some discussion right off the top since we're on the topic? Well, I'm also I'm curious about whether or not you would like to hear on my side of the podcast like do you want to hear about how a combat went or should i skip ahead of that and just like get to sort of like the importance of that combat and then move along well how about uh how about sort of a halfway between those options maybe give like uh, uh, a sort of brief bullet point run through of the combat maybe mention anything significant or cool that happened during it but then move on to like the significance of it and what happened next i'll do my best how's that sound because i don't the, the thing is like what i like about hearing your combat descriptions is there are some like cool moments and flourishes I uh, get to hear the characters reacting to something big or you know hear like hear from the transcript how they reacted uh, but at the same time, it's that old thing that we've talked about before about like, you know, is combat boring if you're not really a part of it, if you're not act actively involved in it, or you don't have the custom figures of, of Dimension 20 or whatever? 
Yeah. So I, I don't think... want to miss anything, but uh, I also understand, like, yeah, you know, we can we can sort of breeze through it a bit. Yeah. I mean, where we left off, basically, my players had just come across. Um, they'd infiltrated using gaseous form uh, a forge operated by Azers that had what the players were not able to identify, but we were, I, I, like, the characters did not identify, but out of character, we all sort of identify as salamanders. And basically what's happening is the salamanders are bound to the forge through this magic circle that is uh, present there. Um, but in order to liberate these salamanders, the player characters must battle the Azur taskmasters who have uh, clerics with great swords who uh the, those odachi great swords that i mentioned um and they are casting things like bless they're casting sanctuary uh healing dudes do you ever use a uh, sanctuary in your games uh my clerics certainly do oh uh, yeah frequently i'd say yeah sanctuary a good uh it's it's low level eh like yeah. an easy an easy cast easy throw away but can be very effective in a clinch um yeah i mean the fight goes pretty well uh like i don't think anybody goes down um though uh you know Hex ends up taking a fair bit of hits as he usually does. Um, but they defeat the Azur. Uh, the serpentine creatures continue to watch the party, snarling and hissing with alien reptilian expressions. Uh, the party can see a massive hammer of some kind on the forge that the Azur were working on. Uh, Connor approaches the magic circle and tries to wave his hand through its boundary. He is not prevented from passing through it. Gent mimics the hissing back towards the salamanders. The salamanders scowl at Gent. Apparently, they do not appreciate the art of mimicry. And uh, Gent goes, critics, but will back away ready with their bow for the first sign of attack. The magic circle, uh, I point out, could be probably be dispelled with a suitable religion or arcana check. Um and uh connor cast guidance on gent to give her give them 1d4 to a check uh and says uh, i think you and paylor have the best chance of cracking this and uh gent says <laughs> i guess you wouldn't say you want me to religion or arcana check but um <laughs> he's like whatever whichever is better for you i'm just not that kind of cleric <laughs> uh <laughs> So they get um, 25 on Arcana. Gent circles the area, examining the runes of the magic circle carefully. According to their prior studies, Gent understands the style of binding circle and realizes that marring specific runes at different points will successfully undo the circle. This will free the serpentine creatures more than likely. And uh, Gent explains that to Hex and Connor and says, I would like to free them regardless. Not a fan of attacking bound creatures. And uh, Connor says, uh, worst come to worst, I'll send them straight home. And holds up his holy symbol ready to banish. 
I say uh, you could also attempt to befriend these creatures despite the language barrier with a successful persuasion check. And uh, Gent says they seem closest to Hex. And I say, or like, you know, try to establish some sort of good communication. Connor turns to Hex and hits him with Eagle Splendor. And uh, I point out... Eagle Splendor? This is one I'm not familiar with. Oh, this is... Uh, this is the spell that uh, I believe gives you advantage on uh, charisma uh, things. Just that cool. Um, I point out, funny enough, while you guys are deliberating, they're having their own snake conversation of some kind. Uh, Hex uh, is now stunningly beautiful, Alex says. And I say, I feel like for Hex, this would translate more as him having like a super striking presence, like a badass commander like Morgar. Hex speaks in Draconic. You guys understand me? More hissing. Their hissing is, is unnatural, like the flickering of a torch. We're ending this evil operation. If you cooperate, we can get you out of here. Hex begins his trademark sign language. And I say, hit me with that and persuade. And he gets a five. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Jet says, oh no. He says, the other die was a nat one. So, yeah, it was advantage on the charisma check. But, uh, no dice. So, uh, I say, they don't seem to be getting what Hex is laying down. Connor or Jent could still try the persuasion check. And, uh, Jent says, do I pull out the flask again? Connor coughs awkwardly and says, kill, Egalock, go home. And gets a 17 for persuasion. And I say, uh, does Connor guidance himself? He says, oh yeah, 19 in total. And, uh, Gent pulls out a flask and mimes a good cheer and dancing and gets a 29. I say, a quick, quick player, ugh, excuse me, a quick prayer to Paylor ensures that Connor's blunt brief statements are understood. The creatures are somewhat bemused by Gent, but they largely ignore them, instead nodding to Connor. All right, let's try it. And Gent uh, points out what they need to do with the circles. Together, they undo the bindings of the circle. The circle begins to dissipate, slowly fading away as the glowing ring coils into darkness. Gent um, says, fingers crossed. The serpentine creatures hiss and each bend over, reaching under the forge. They, they retrieve big two-handed curved swords for themselves. Then, having armed themselves, they bring over the weapon that was being worked on by the Azur on the forge. It is a mighty maul crowned with spikes. The creatures hold the weapon out to the group in offering. Connor takes it and bows. Jen says, very cool. The creatures then gesture and request for them to grant them passage out of the forge. Hex and Connor move out of the way, and Gent salutes. As they slither through their group, they stop before exiting the forge and point toward the far north end of the forge beyond the pillars. Hex turns to look. One of them knocks on the wall next to it. Gent says, I love a false wall. And Hex says, let's check it out. Investigating the spot, they find that there is indeed a loose stone in the wall. Removing it, they find a small hiding place beneath where a small uh, travel-sized book is tucked away. Once satisfied that you have discovered the hidden book, the salamanders ready their blades and prepare proceed up the stairs out of the forge. Hex looks at Gent. You're the booker bird. What is it? And Gent takes a closer look. And uh, 
Gent looks through it and realizes that it is a, a spell book, a small travel-sized spell book bound in glossy black spider hide. It appears to be drow in origin. And, uh, Gent says, these drow are turning up a lot. Gent doesn't know drow, but they get the feeling that the suggestion here is that this forge was once a drow structure of some kind. And, uh, Hex says, that makes sense. The drow did know the way in. I say, unless it was a drow slave that hid this book, but it was seems more to you like this is something from before their slavery. And uh, that is when this particular session uh, ended. But I figure we've got plenty of time that I can keep uh, continuing from here. Um, maybe, though, uh, we wanted to hit up the tavern first before we uh, went on to the next thing. Sure, just pull up a chair. So the reason we're here in the tavern is that I wanted to engage you in a bit of discussion. These days, my brain has just been full of RPG systems, the, the RPG systems that I run. You know, I'm running a D&D campaign with some friends. Uh, you and I are going to play Wicked Ones really soon as well, so launch into a campaign for that one. And so as part of learning Wicked Ones, I also did a bunch of reading on Blades in the Dark and uh, just to sort of get a handle on that system. And then, of course, we played Teeth, which is also a Forged in the Dark game. And uh, reading up on Blades in the Dark and Wicked Ones and playing Teeth has, has done a great job of helping me just sort of connect the dots, like figure out how Wicked Ones works and get a better handle on how to play a Forged in the Dark game. And uh, during all of this, uh, me, you know consulting D&D source materials to, to write adventures and reading up on Wicked Ones and Playing Teeth. Uh, all of this also got me thinking about City of Mist and what that system was like. And uh, in particular, you know, comparing City of Mist to uh, Forge in the Dark, Blades in the Dark games, just because they're both uh, fiction forward, I believe is the term. Is that the official term? This is the term I keep coming across online. I mean, it is, uh, like, I have definitely seen it recurring, um, but I think it's kind of like, like, it's not the name of a system, if that's what you're saying. If that's no, not right. the name of a, of a system, just of, like, a type of system, fiction-forward RPGs. It definitely strikes um, me as, like, having a certain lineage that goes, like, through Forged in the Dark back to Powered by the Apocalypse, which I believe City of Mist was. Yes, that's right. Um, and so it's it's got me thinking, you know, I was reading, because I was reading up on Blades in the Dark and just coming across this term fiction-forward gaming... Uh, and, and thinking about these differences, a lot of people talk about how D&D is a very combat-centric RPG system. I guess this is appropriate to talk about now coming off of a combat in the Coyote's Aegis campaign. Uh, about how all of the character progression, the bonuses you get, and all that, uh, they're, they're basically geared towards making you better in combat. And combat encounters are just a big part of how the game runs. And the story that strings it together, uh, that's, I wouldn't say secondary, but it's more like a framework to build these encounters out of or into. Um, 
And I guess all of that makes a lot of sense, too, because as we know, D&D sort of came out of just combat gaming, right? Like chainmail, it's a lot more focused on combat and then having uh, a, a story that goes along with it became a more prominent aspect of the game. But all of this to say, like, I've got all these ideas floating around in my head and I'm starting to realize that, like, I really, I'm definitely gravitating towards this fiction forward style of gaming more and more the more I read about it and stuff. Um, and a question I wanted to ask you, Tom, uh, I don't know if you noticed this, but I was saying this to you when I was reading about Blades in the Dark and Wicked Ones, Forged in the Dark. Um, I Reading up on those rules made me approach the game of teeth differently. The way I was playing before was very much sort of with one foot still in my D&D sensibilities, where it was sort of like... I was treating you, the GM, as the storyteller and who was going to prompt me to act within the story. But it really seems like one of the choices with Blades in the Dark, uh, it's especially prominent in Wicked Ones, and I don't know if this translates across all Forged in the Dark games, but it really encourages just like more collaborative storytelling. It, it encourages you to as a player, suggest things that might go into the game. So an example uh, that I can think of from our game of Teeth was all the characters were in a mine, and we wanted to figure out how to, how to take down the mine, how to collapse the mine, and somebody, I think it was Grant, said, are there mine carts here? And you went, oh, there could be mine carts here. And I instantly was like, yes, yeah, 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 there's gotta be. And... That kind of thing, like, that's not something that happens in D&D. In D&D, uh, there's this careful advanced prep that the DM is expected to do where you know, like, the features, right? Uh, the mine is like this. It's not illuminated. There are tracks or there aren't tracks. Is there a cart? Isn't there a cart? But it seems like with, with Blades in the Dark games, the players can sort of suggest that stuff too. They're, they're, they're involved in creating the story as well. I don't know, have I got that right? Did you detect a difference in how I was approaching teeth in this most recent session? Uh not not really actually. I was kind of surprised. Oh, really? I I was like I thought it was going to like you had sort of given me forewarning that you were going to have uh your you know, you were going to be approaching it differently and then when it came to playing I was like, "Oh, that was pretty much what I what I expect. Um, Interesting. I mean, maybe it maybe it is just a mental switch on my part, thinking about a different way of seeing the game. Because normally, I wouldn't necessarily throw out ideas for something that could happen outside of what my character does. Yeah. No. I I I definitely like it. The example with the minecarts is is very good. But like, I guess it's just like. For me, that's always what I've been kind of looking for. And so, like, I guess I should appreciate that it's, like, coming to fruition now. But it's, like, I I like, you know, as, as soon as you guys said about the minecarts, I was like, well, I got a yes and this. Like, um, or at uh, best, not, here, give a here, no here, but. Um, right. 
Well, like, I believe uh, the thing was that, like, there were minecarts, but you had to go deeper into the mine to get to them, which is tricky because there was a monster down in the mine and you didn't want to go deeper. Um, I It's funny because just last night when I was running World of Darkness, I had a funny moment where a player was trying to think of a location for something to take place, and I was like, well, you can make a place up. I mean, I made up an apartment for a character just like two scenes ago because I needed a character to have a place. And it's like, they were like, oh, okay. Like that, me well, saying that's just that really like, got yeah. that idea across, I think. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, I feel like in D&D, &D, the player just is sort of, the expectation anyway is that the player only inhabits their character and the DM fills in all the details of the world. So a character might say like, is there a minecart in this mine? And in D&D, &D, the DM would just be like, yes, there's one, you know, down the hall right there. But it seems more like in a Forged in the Dark system, the player could be like, is there a minecart in the mine? And the DM could be, or the GM could be like, oh yeah, yeah, maybe there is. I recall you even said to Grant and I like, do you want there to be one here? Like you sort of, suggested like there is if you want there to be there is if it makes for good storytelling yeah i i it's i definitely can see myself as having said that so yeah i don't quite remember but um another example of how i approached play differently uh in this session is during downtime during the downtime uh of the game when we, my character is like an arcane scholar and a scientist and an artificer. Uh, and so in his downtime, he tends to do experiments and study like samples of monsters that we've fought and just like studies, arcane studies. And it used to be that when it came time for me to do something like that, I just look at my list and be like, well, okay, I got this sample from, you know, this particular creature. So I'm just going to study that. I'm going to biopsy it and see what happens. It, it, I treated it almost like something like, uh, like in like a game of XCOM or something where you set a research project to go in the background. You don't really need to, to think about it too much. You're just like, okay, if I do this, I get that in two days. So go. That was sort of how I was approaching my downtime activities before where it was like i don't know what do i want to do i guess uh my character would just study something but this time and and it was always like asking you what i could do and looking at what i had in my equipment list and sort of basing my ideas off of that like okay i have a sample of this creature so i study this sample of this creature in the most recent session of teeth you asked me what I wanted to do with my downtime. My character had just been through a very traumatic event encountering like the supernatural beast that was sort of warping reality. And so my immediate thought was like, he doesn't want to go anywhere near monsters or anything. So instead of asking you like, can I do this? Or what if I did that? I just sort of said like, well, I got this big jar of bugs. My character is has a big wound on his arm. So I reach into the jar of bugs and I find little grubs and I start using them, planting them in my wound to disinfect it. Like just sort of grabbed onto a more thorough idea instead of being like, I don't know, can I do this? Do I have, you know, are there grubs in this jar? I just sort of went with it. That's the kind of thing that I'm talking about, about my differing approach. 
but it sounds like from your perspective, it was just like, that's just sort of what I was doing anyway. I guess it's almost entirely a mental change on my part, even if it's not being reflected in my actions. Yeah, I think I think that um, there's something about like, like, I guess you were playing the game more as it's meant to be played, but because that's how it's meant to be played, it didn't strike me as like out of the ordinary for me i guess one thing was that like the way you had given me heads or or forewarning i i had maybe been concerned that you were gonna like throw real curveballs at me or something oh Um, no i mean i'm never out to antagonize the other players or the gm it's also i don't know um i just like you know, maybe I got some of that COVID fog on my brain, but I'm just like uh, not remembering it that clearly. Um, well, here's something I can ask you then that is related to this topic and uh, happened more recently for you. So do you find that when you GM World of Darkness, you approach that differently than, say, Teeth? I guess for World of Darkness, maybe you do a bit more forward prep or something like that. Do you, is there ever a case where a player will want to do something and it and because the role of the game master is different in World of Darkness than from Teeth, you might shut them down? Um, partly, but more and more i am running world of darkness similarly to like i am informing that how i run that with my experiences from forged in the dark mm. and um it's i would say that the main difference is that world of darkness everything goes like from scene to scene without the larger like phase structure right yeah the phase structure was also something i wanted to touch on let's touch on it well just just naturally came to it yeah the the phasing having game phases i mean obviously that's a very different thing from something like dungeons and dragons right dnd doesn't really have a cycle of play uh, in my experience anyway the the experience of playing dnd is you know story 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 encounter of some kind could be like a skill-based encounter could be combat story 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 and then you know uh, achieve the goal of whatever quest or adventure they're on and then i guess that's the thing that repeats is it's just like stories and storytelling and encounters in pursuit of a goal and then once that goal is achieved the story continues new encounters new goal Whereas something like Teeth or Wicked Ones, these games have a much more, I wouldn't say rigid, but a much more structured cycle of play where you you cycle through these different phases and it's always clear, like in Teeth, you've got the, the sort of grand season clock, right? So you, you go through the cycles, the cycle of play, and then a notch appears on the season clock. And so there's always this sense of progression because of that loop and i don't know i i just i find this 
these differences very interesting as someone who really my vast, vast majority of my experience with RPGs is D&D, where I feel like the cycle of play in D&D is much more freeform. But, uh, but I, I, I guess the cycle of play in D&D is more freeform than Forged in the Dark, but the role of the game master in D&D is much more rigid than Blades in the Dark. Does that make sense? I think so. Wait, can you wait? Can you repeat that? The cycle of play in D and D is more freeform than Blades in the Dark, but the role of the game master in D and D is more rigid than Blades in the Dark. I think that's generally true. Yeah, it's just it's something that I find interesting. Uh, there was. A line in the Wicked One's source book, and it's probably just a sentiment that is copied directly out of Blades in the Dark as well, because it's talking about the, the base system of Blades in the Dark. Uh, but it was saying that, you know, the, the GM never rolls any dice. The players do all the dice rolling, and there is never a dice roll that results in nothing happening. In D&D, you can roll the dice to do a check or do an attack, and you just fail, and nothing happens. But in Wicked Ones, anyway, the point is like, there's never a time where nothing happens. No matter what the die roll is, it determines the next thing that happens. If it's a, it's a critical failure, then like bad stuff happens. If it's a critical success, great stuff happens. But there's never a point where it's just like, no, it just doesn't work. I mean, it is tricky, though, because there are situations where, you know, you can be in a controlled position and therefore have very little consequence to failure. But then the thing that changes is like you downshift in position or whatever you know um that's something that i always have to be like sort of aware of it's like there are situations where it doesn't make sense to punish the player because there was no reason for them to be like set up for failure do you know what i'm saying yes yes but even even in those cases even if you're not punishing the player like there is a reaction to the role, yes. which in D&D, there, there can easily be cases where just there's zero, a role ends up being completely inconsequential and literally nothing happens as a result of it. I try to pick the lock. I fail to pick the lock. The lock just doesn't open. Nothing happens. You would have to include as the consequence that like the time that the lock is taking at least to pick where then that sort of counts against a clock or something. Right, in a, in a Blades in the Dark game, for sure. But in something like D&D, there doesn't even have to be a consequence. I'm just, I'm, I'm interested in how, in that, in like that key difference between these RPG systems. Anyway, the bottom line to all of this sort of rumination on my part is I'm starting to, I'm starting to like boil them down into these base elements and think like, like, is there, does there exist the optimal mashup of these different systems for me? Is there a game that combines only the best elements of each of these? And I will say that, uh, 
I don't want to be the one to write that game if it doesn't exist. <laughs> because uh, another thing that all of these systems got me thinking about is uh, how many other things are based off of them and how that always makes me feel a little, I guess, like maybe crowded is the right word. As an example of this, uh, later in this episode, I'll be talking about a an RPG I found called Wilder Feast, which I thought was it's, it's really cool. I like the the setting. I like the trappings of it and everything. The system, though, feels very much like sort of a riff on Forged in the Dark. Like it's all it's like Forged in the Dark, but it's not quite Forged in the Dark. And I'm finding more and more as I latch on to these core systems that I like, that when I see a system that's just kind of riffing on one of those other ones, but not married to it, like it's all like, uh, like how the GI Joe, uh, uh, D20 system, what was that called? Essence 20. Essence 20 really just kind of feels like, like D20 modern to me. And I think I even asked when we were covering it, like, but why would I, why play this when I can just play that other thing? So in in diving into these systems, these ones that I really like, and sort of identifying these key differences between them and puzzling over, you know, what I like about them, thinking, is there an optimal system that combines all the best elements of them? I, I then find myself sort of getting frustrated because I'm like, ah, oh, but then then it's just going to be this thing that that frustrates me otherwise where i'll find myself looking at the at the system and going but then why wouldn't i just play blades in the dark why wouldn't i just play dnd i don't know i'm rambling over here just having these thoughts about rpg systems and wondering like do i need more of these <laughs> should i maybe i should just play blades in the dark from now on i mean it's so it's so tricky for me because I am supposed to like my coyotes ages is supposed to be on hiatus. And so that like thusly when teeth ends, I am supposed to go back to running coyotes ages. And it's like, it's been a long time now since I've run five E like it's been many, many. Weeks. Oh really? And yeah. And it's like, I'm going to have to go back to that. Oh, it's it's like I was looking at the task of that recently and it was it feels daunting, man. Um is going back yeah, going back to a world of that. ACs and DCs rather than just sixes or successes, you know. Well, and uh you know, I brought up I brought up City of Mist. Uh the reason I brought that up is the the setting is cool and all. I like the setting for City of Mist. I liked I liked a lot of the the trappings of that. But the thing that I think I liked the most about it was the character creation system. Really loved do like the the questionnaires that you, you answer the questions in. Uh, and I especially liked how unique it made those characters because the answers to the questionnaire would then become your character's unique abilities. And you could apply them however you saw fit, as long as it made sense for that ability to be in play. I really dug, like, just the, and the presentation, too, where your your character was like a, a little pamphlet, like a bookmark-sized pamphlet. Really, really liked how the characters were handled in that. And, uh, 
I almost feel like like Blades in the Dark is still a bit too married to D&D, keeping keeping its stats and all this. Maybe it should just be much more fiction forward in terms of character creation and just do something like City of Mist did. Anyway, I've been babbling. Obviously had a few too many ales at the tavern. I thought it was all pretty interesting. But, uh, I mean, this is the stuff that's on my mind as we go into Wicked Ones. Because something I'm really going to say when we do our first session and, you know, say to our other players, uh, our friend Sarah is playing with us, and I I don't think she's ever played uh, Blades in the Dark game. But I'm going to, like, really drive home that especially in Wicked Ones... It's gotta, this whole game has to be about all of us collaborating to tell a great story. The, the, the players in Wicked Ones come up with their own plans to oversee their master plan, right? It's not like I'm going to be building out quests for you guys to go on. You guys, we all gotta collaborate to figure out what the best way to achieve your goals would be and then figure out how to execute those plans. And, uh, Again, that's just, I feel like that that kind of narrative agency is so different from the way I would approach D&D. In D&D, it would be, it would, I, would, I would be constantly asking the DM, like, can I do this? Is this available? Is this resource, you know, where can I find that? Do I know anybody who knows? I, I, that's actually sort of a perfect example question, right? Like, if I'm in a game of D&D and my character is planning a, a heist... I'd be like, okay, is there a place in town where I can rent a wagon? But in something like, in a Blades in the Dark game, and in particular Wicked Ones, I'd be like, okay, I know where they rent the wagons, and I'm going to go steal one. Hell and yeah. I feel like, yeah, exactly. And But that is that is like a, a key difference there. You can just sort of declare these things. Uh, my character already knows this. Whereas in D&D, I would definitely be more like, does my character know this? Um so I'm going to be really reinforcing that key difference in approaching the systems, but I don't know. It's it's interesting, and uh, all the systems just getting all tangled up in my brain and making me wonder, wonder if I should just switch all over to one or the other or find some sort of hybridized system or what. Man, I'll be fascinated to know if you find some sort of hybridized system. Uh, I don't know. We'll we'll see what happens. For now, I'm just I'm playing D and D and I'm playing Wicked Ones and I'm playing Teeth. So it's it's mostly I'm I'm keeping them each in their own game, but maybe that'll change in the future. So is there is oh. there actually one last question? Is there anything? Uh, what do you think of character creation in those three systems I mentioned, like City of Mist? Uh, we could say teeth or blades in the dark and D and D because I feel like the character creation is drastically different in each of those games. And as I said, I, I'm more and more, I'm just kind of finding that I actually really loved character creation in wicked ones or not wicked ones, uh, city of mist. Um, yeah. So the advantage of, Dungeons and Dragons over something like City of Mist. Like, I have to be feeling in the right mood or I have to be in the right mindset to create a City of Mist character because I have to have 
a kind of idea as to who they are. I have to have a concept in mind, or at least that's like definitely where I started when we, in our example, where I had my wear Charmander. It's very true. Like it demands you think about your character's backstory and, and the creative side of things right from the start. Whereas with these other games, you can either focus on like having a build like you would in 5e or in pathfinder or something like that you're like i am a this this and i'm gonna build my character this way and like again that tends to be very combat oriented um or you know with with blades in the dark or teeth like it comes down to a very simple thing of like you pick your playbook and then you sort of like it's up to you to customize that and, and make that your own so when it comes to a character creation system do you favor blades in the dark over D D? like which do you which of those systems do you think is the your favorite i wouldn't say the best but which is the one that you like the most It's really hard to say, like, I don't know, I guess, you know, I kind of enjoy all of them. Um, they all have their merits. I don't know if I would say, you know, there's so much fun that I can derive personally from just building characters when it is a character building system like... Dungeons and Dragons or something like that. I would never want to lose that system, you know? So, you know, maybe that's my favorite, but I do really like the playbook system for Blades in the Dark. It's just the playbook system is what is it's much more tailored towards the setting of the game that you're playing. Like like Teeth, the playbooks are so specific to Teeth down to the items that you carry and everything um yeah i just i just yeah i think i think i would even go so far as to say i prefer a character building system like dungeons and dragons okay interesting interesting i mean i, I think maybe you like a uh, more crunch in your game than i do yeah he definitely has the crunchiest but... characters but that doesn't mean that also doesn't mean that I wouldn't like sort of take a break from those types of games and just do blade like forts in the dark games for a mm -hmm. while, like I am doing, um, or or World of Darkness and and things like that. Um, I am like taking a break from that sort of thing. It's just that like I don't know. I get so much enjoyment out of just the character building of those games. You know, I would never want to, never want to lose that. You know. Yeah, yeah, I get where you're coming from, and I mean, I'm not gonna stop playing D and D just because I like these other games. I don't know, man. So many RPGs, so little time, and that's uh, the thing. And I do, I do long for a system that that gives me the the best of all of this, but I don't know if it exists. And I don't know if it does exist. I don't know if I'd like it. And I definitely don't want to be the one who would create it. So back over on my side of things, 
when we left off, uh, the party was in the forge of Ashgrain outpost, having just liberated the serpentine slaves held there. Before departing, the serpentine creatures revealed a hiding place in the north wall containing what appeared to be a small travel-sized spellbook bound in glossy black spider hide, apparently drow in origin. The book's presence in the wall implies the prior presence of drow in the forge, but the nature of that presence remains unknown. They can't read drow, but they've made plenty of contacts recently that can. In the meantime, they have one remaining objective before the Battle of Ashgrain Outpost, the prison camp on the west side of the outpost. Gent says, time to get our drag on. Say the prison camp sits on the Gross. western side of Ashgrain Outpost, visible only at a close distance due to the cluster of smokestacks surrounding the area that billow toxic smog into the air above. A subtle wind blows gently through the camp, displacing some of the smog temporarily. Being to one side, the camp is slightly elevated in accordance with the strict mine layout of the area, with the earthen ramps leading up and down the sides of the outpost. The camp is surrounded by high walls that connect to the western side of the trench-like outpost. Approaching through the forest on the west side of the outpost, it's a sheer drop into the camp, while the walls that reach out to ring the camp have four archways built into them connecting to the rest of the outpost. Within the camp are many scattered shacks. Um, you know, Tom, I'm just going to jump in right here because... Uh, I thought of a, a pun earlier in the episode, and I, I held my tongue on it. But now there's this get your drag on pun, so I'm just gonna say I'm just gonna say it, Tom. What well, our discussion earlier about a certain spell made me want to include an NPC who is a, a female cultist who only vends one particular type of spell. You know what it is? Uh Sanctuary? That's right. The cult. She sells sanctuary. Uh, um. Uh, <laughs> as you were, as you were. Yeah. Uh, so, um, I, I say, uh, when we left off, they were in the forge. So now they're heading into the prison camp. The main question is, how do they want to enter the prison camp? Do they want to go get on the other side of the outpost and drop down in or head through one of the four archways? And Jen says, I would say drop down, but I'm concerned about someone's ability. And I say, you can try and get a vantage point on the interior of the camp before entering as well. Jen says, I think we should scope shit out first. Hex agrees. That seems wise. I say, so I think what you will want to do then is take the long way around the prison camp to get up on the other side, scope out from above, and then potentially drop down where they're ready to infiltrate. The noise and smoke of the outpost will at least make jetpacks a potentially viable option. Jen says, that would be helpful for those not nimble. And, uh, Hex says, yep, Connor feels a little more confident, or Alex says, Connor feels a little more confident. Within the camp, they do not spot any hostile patrols. It seems the prisoners within the camp are mostly left to themselves. Most of these prisoners appear to be drones, and the majority of them appear to be drow in nature. There is one major exception among the prisoners that stands out to them. A female dwarf in what appears to be Draelic apparel. And, uh... I included a picture of this character 
I just got online somewhere. Some dwarf. Oh yeah, no nonsense. Dwarf they see in the camp. Um, and uh, she doesn't seem familiar to any of the group personally, but her clothes mark her out as someone foreign to this area. And uh, Jen asks, do we see any sentries or sense of routine at the camp? And I say, little to none. Granted, most of the prisoners seem to be drones, and they're not known for their rebellious tendencies. Still, there are exceptions like the dwarf, and they seem to be left to their own devices within the camp. Uh, Alex asks, any buildings in here large enough to hide a dragon? And I say, no, but there are areas obscured by smog that you can't observe, and these areas are big enough that a dragon could be lurking out of sight. Jen says, dank smog. The Alex says, how high is this overlook we're perched on? And I ask, uh, what is the intention of this question? Having trouble ballparking it, looking for a range to maybe help me out. And uh, Alex says, looking at stone shaping to make the to stone shaping the wall to make footholds but i imagine i'd need a lot of casts stone shape only does five feet at a time so i say it'd be a lot easier if you went to where the wall surrounding the camp connects to the overlooking cliff that said you need to you'd still need to go down about 70 feet he says yeah okay jetpacks it is well shall we get down there i doubt the drones will be helpful but that dwarf might be willing to guide us to our friend and uh gent says uh gents debating if they need the jetpack but if everyone else is gonna is gonna do is gonna use one no point for the risk so they go down with the jetpack as well the jetpack taking advantage of the smoke rising around the camp they descend to the top of the wall protected from the toxic smog by their trioptics and rebreathers hopping down from the wall they land inside the prison camp's perimeter Fire and smoke still bursts and belches from various corners of the place as the smokestacks and machinery continue to work all around them. Thankfully, this means their jetpacks fit right in. Uh, Alex asks, can we see any of those crystals that we found at the giant's foundry? And I say, no, you don't see any in this area. Gent keeps their eyes open to make sure no one threatening comes through the smoke as they approach. And they go towards the dwarf. Uh, Hex makes his way over to her and Gent continues to keep guard. The dwarf spots them as they approach and jumps a little before hurrying over. Damn, am I glad to see you, the dwarf says. The name is Val. I'm with the Draelic army, at least on some level. I was supposed to drive a truckload of supplies from the jungles into the... It, from the jungles in the west to our forces on the egglock perimeter but i got stopped by a fire giant if you can believe that bastards dragged me out of the vehicle and took the supply truck too i take it you're my rescue heck says we're here to clear the way for the rest of the draelic army so yeah that's us any draelic personnel in here or is it just these drones gent says what did they do with the truck uh val shakes her head and says mostly drones mostly drow there's something lurking in the shadows, but it seems to leave us alone as long as we don't go bothering it. She points towards the back of the camp. I'm not sure, but I'm sure it's hell like to find it. In fact, if you guys can get me to the top of the wall, she trails off. She looks toward the wall and points to the four archways. The archways are, the archways are done up with some kind of magic so that we can't, uh, I don't know. If you try to run out, you just sort of black out and find yourself back here in the camp. Same thing seems to happen if we go too deep into the smoke. I guess that's how they keep the monster within from leaving. So what's the plan? 
Hex pulls off his jetpack and holds it out to her. Well, if the archways are your problem, take this. I need you to get out of here. Report directly to Morgwar in the Draelic army camp. Tell him the aces are in the prison and let him know about the archways. <laughs> That's not true. They're not the aces. They're coyotes' ages. Can't have our troops marching through them if they're just going to black out. Uh, when Hex says Morgwar's name, he casts a lookout into the shadows around him. Uh, Val takes the jetpack and gives a confident nod. Rushing over to the wall, Ma Val makes a brief, brief test jump up onto the wall to get a better feel for the device before taking off beyond a plume of smoke. Well, that is like one out of many here, Gent says. Do I remember anything about smoke behaving like this from my college days? I say not really, but you can make an arcana check. I say 17. So magic effects on archways is pretty typical as far as arcane security measures go. Magic effects on smoke would definitely be rarer, but given the effects that seem to permeate the entire forest of Agalok, it might be more of a possibility than one might otherwise consider. That's about all you can speculate, though. Alex says, I'm assuming between being in a sort of canyon and it being real smoggy, that's at least dim light here. I say you would need to get into one of the more secluded areas provided by the smoke and the shadows of the surrounding structures due to the constant flares of industrial furnaces around you. But otherwise, yes. And uh, X says, cool. Hex is going to wander into a darkened corner and turn into a bat. And as a bat, I will flit around the darkened corners, searching the camp with my blind sight. Gent uh, decides to chat with whoever else is in the camp to get, info get more info, if anything new. And uh, I say, you find the dragon curled up in a corner of the camp. Its eyes pop open as it senses you. The edges of its wings and tail seem to give off a dark smoke or wisp of shadow. The dragon stands and roars. As it does, you notice its magnificent bronze scales have turned translucent and dark like obsidian. Meanwhile, Jed is approached by one of the more animate drow drones, a female. Are you here to free us? Dent says, if we are able, I will see that all of you get out of here, but information would be helpful. The deathly pale drow nods slowly and thinks. I can tell you the layout of much of the outpost. Most of the work seems to be done in the south and southeast. That's where the giants are most commonly found. Stone giant slaves and fire giant tyrants. Stone giant slaves? They might be helpful taking down these arches, especially if we were able to walk out of them. Jen asks for details of the outpost layout. Meanwhile, in the smoky shadows of the edge of the camp, the dragon stands erect but motionless. There's also an underdark passage that leads into the outpost. There's a bridge connecting two of the levels above the lowest pit mine. Beneath that bridge, a stream leaks out to mark the passage, the drow explains. Hex the bat floats down about ten feet in front of the dragon. The dragon blinks, flicking its head around slightly. It observes, them as they get uh, it observes Hex as he gets close, squinting slightly. It stretches out its limb where it stands, dragging up the earth beneath its claws. The dragon definitely seems aware of them, uh, of Hex. But now that Hex is this close, they feel as though they are in a swirl of fog and shadows and everything beyond them and the dragon is obscured. Moreover, a strong wind seems to be pushing against them now as they fly, making it difficult to move forward. Uh, Hex drops the uh, polymorph and says, You ever met an ogre named Gog and uh, shout, shouting over the wind if necessary. As soon as he drops the polymorph, the dragon rears up away from Hex, then it sniffs the air. Gog, the dragon growls. Where is Gog? 
and uh, I let Hex roll persuasion with advantage, and he gets a nat 20. He says, on his way here, he asks us to find you. Uh, the dragon seems to relax, closing his eyes, and I let... Uh, he uh let I, I let hex roll another persuade with advantage this time he gets a natural eight for eight total and uh gent says win one lose one the dragon hisses you're lucky lizard and he says yeah that's probably one way of looking at it. what keeps you trapped here the dwarf said something about the arches be here being bewitched but you have no need to pass through them the dragon's eyes widen we are both trapped here the dragon says and I have him roll Persuade with advantage again, and he gets a 9. Gent says, damn. I say, meanwhile, the female drone, drow drone informs Gent that her name is Kat. She is formerly a member of House Aishir, but has been working to try and coordinate a drow resistance within the outpost, unsuccessfully following the slaughter of her immediate family. The dragon shakes its head suddenly, snarling, away, away from me. Uh, Gent shows Cat the book they snake. Does this have anything that could help us? Uh, Hex does not need to be told twice. He floats away with his bat cape. I have him roll a wisdom save. Uh, Hex rolls eight, and he says he'll use Indomitable to re-roll the save, but it turns into a four. Ugh. Cat looks through the book. If you had a spellcaster, there are some potent spells here. I can list them if you like. Unfortunately, I cannot cast them. Hex finds that he is unable to move. The dragon snarls. See? And then I have him roll persuasion with advantage again. And he gets a 10. Gent says, God, burn your dice. And uh, I have him make another <laughs> wisdom save. And he says, 14. Does that fail? If it does, I'll burn my second indomitable. I say it does. He says, not 20 for 24. I say, phew, you suddenly regain the ability to move, and not a moment too soon as the dragon suddenly bristles and gives a sinister grin. Not lucky enough, the dragon rumbles, preparing to exhale. He activates the cube of force, and I say, you could move away. You have just enough time. He says, I'll move away then. Yeah, as you float out of the shadowy smoke, you catch a glimpse of the dragon's face twisting into rage as you disappoint him. Well, you seem like a neat person. We'll come back in a bit and get you out of there, Hexer shouts behind him. Then he moves to rejoin Jen and Connor. Jen is with Kat, a drow drone who is currently flipping through the small glossy black spell book they found hidden in the forge. Hex approaches, gives a little nod to Jen and the drow, and says to Connor, Bad news, the dragon's gone batshit. How does your healing work on scaled pigeons? And then on an arcana check... Uh, of 17, Connor says, could be a little difficult. Jed takes back the book and thanks Katz for looking. What about this underground passage? The stream leads from under the bridge and into the underdark. There's no way for me to get there as it is, but it's useful information, I thought. For what it's worth, Connor might be better suited to, suited to talking the dragon down, which could help things along. Seemed like this thing was becoming one with the shadows it lived in. Perhaps a little bit of Paylor's light could help? And I say, it might be worth bringing Hex for the Gog Scent effect, though. Otherwise, Connor is likely just going to seem like some other stranger coming to harass him. And uh, Connor says, all right, show him to me then. You coming, Gent? Gent says, no, I'm going to maybe peek at some giant stone, some stone giant slaves. Maybe they can help? All right, but watch out for those crystals. 
And I say, so is Gent going to take off for the big huts on the map where the stone giant slaves are housed while Connor and Hex go to talk with the shadow dragon? Gent says, I would like to sneak as much as possible. Ask Cat about anything to watch out for that way. And, uh, Hex says, sounds good. I say, luckily, Gent's shadow training will allow them to sneak through the outpost with ease. Gent disappears into the smoke and shadows of the outpost as soon as they've jumped the wall. Much of the outpost around Gent as they travel is preoccupied with labor. Slaves repel from canyon walls with iron picks. Fire giants stride from station to station. And Azur watch the slave camps with hellhounds at their side. It's easy enough to keep their distance from any hostiles, darting from cover to cover between trains of laborers and the tread of giants. Meanwhile, Hex and Connor enter the shadow smoke prison of the, of the dragon. At, the, at some point, the two of them see... The two of them can see the dragon's ominous silhouette in the smoke. But then as they get closer, it becomes harder for them to see anything at all. Moreover, a force like a strong wind seems to discourage their approach. I ask if they continue. Connor looks around and says, Paylor's light hasn't touched this place in some time. Let's press on. And he casts a beacon of hope. I say, does Connor have dispel magic by any chance? And he says, yes, he'll cast dispel magic at third level instead. I say, suddenly the smoke disperses and the wind stops. It's just them in the dark with the dragon. It's not even that far away, between 30 and 40 feet. The dragon squints at them and scowls. Shadows! Nothing but shadows and illusions! The dragon cries. He sounds equal parts mournful and angry. Jen gives a little frowny face. Hardly a shadow this time, friend. Come, let me tend to your grievances. Paylor's light will melt this madness from your mind. Connor approaches the dragon. And uh, I say, oh, I forgot something. Connor has to make one of them dispel checks for a higher level spell. And he says, oh, okay, uh, 12, so probably not. I say, meanwhile, Gent comes upon the big huts that serve as dwellings for the stone giant slaves. They discover three stone giants sitting around workway at huge stones with chisels. They're all dirty and wear dour expressions. I ask, how close does Connor get to the dragon? Also, can Connor give me a persuasion with the advantage? He casts guidance quickly on himself. Gets a 21, 28 on persuasion. And Connor closes to 20 feet away. Hex follows with him. The dragon is quiet for a moment. Who are you? And he says, I am, Con I am Connor, envoy of Paylor and a friend of Gog. You have been driven mad by these shadows. I am here to help. And he rolls another persuasion with advantage, and I say, feel free to guidance. With a 17, the dragon rears its head back. No. And both of them must make a strength savings throw. Um, meanwhile, Jen asks if there are any fire giants or azers in earshot. For the strength saving throw, Connor gets a 20 and Hex gets a 12. I say there are no fire giants or Azers monitoring the stone giants or their dwellings. No. Connor holds his ground, but Hex is thrown back 40 feet as the dragon lets out a blast of repulsive energy. I have Connor and Hex roll insight, and Connor gets a 20 and Hex gets an 11. I say, so Hex notices that the dragon is much less obscured than before, even after being thrown back from it. Connor, meanwhile, remembers a detail from their briefing. The only name they were given for the dragon was Cub. Might be something? Apart from that, Connor does mark the fact that while the dragon might have directly attacked either of them, it opted for the repulsion breath instead. The question is, was that a voluntary choice or just the only option available to it in its current state?
And uh, cutting back to Gent, Gent approaches the stone giants with hands up, uh, slowly dropping stealth. And uh, the stone giants barely acknowledge Gent's approach, giving little more than an irritated glance to the Kenku as they continue at their chisel work. And Gent says, I don't know, Gent, I don't know, giant, but do I remember any simple words I may have seen, like freedom or help? Say, not really. The stone giants you encountered earlier did speak common, though. Maybe try rolling nature or insight, though. You might be able to think of something. And they get an unnatural 20. Say, I say, you remember the stone giants at the factory giving you something, giving you gold and telling you the stone giant slaves might be more willing to exist if they were given some sort of upfront payment. They're not really giving you the time of day as it is, but if you offered something, you might be able to get their attention. Gent says, yeah, I'll start by flipping a gold piece. Uh, Gent ha even has things more desirable than, to a stone giant than gold. 50 gold worth of diamonds, a, five, a 1,500 gold re ruby, etc., uh, Jen says, I'm, I'm like going through her uh, inventory at this point. Jen's like, not the ruby, but I will do a good trick with diamonds between the knuckles <laughs> and jumping from hand to hand. Seems like a crappy deal here. Maybe you are open to another? The diamonds definitely get their attention. When they speak, the giants grunt and look to one another. One of them says hesitantly, for diamonds? For many diamonds, Jen says. The giants look to one another, muttering in giant. They've all stopped their work entirely now. After conferring with one another, they squint at Gent. The one doing the speaking says, What deal? <laughs> Gent says, oh, Didn't think this far. I say, You want them to smash the walls around the prison camp? He says, Yeah, but I don't want them to get killed by fire giants. He says, When I want stone walls taken down, I go to the experts. Is this something you can do? And I have them roll persuade with advantage. They get a 26. The giants look to one another, then back to Gent, and then nod. They each stand up. The one doing the speaking walks over to, to Gent with he big, heavy footsteps and outstretches a hand to Gent, implying he expects them to hand over his payment. What wall? And uh, Gent says, I think the wall closest to the prison camp. The giant gives a single affirmative nod and a grunt, his hand still outstretched. Gent hands over the 50 gold worth of diamonds. I can provide more if you want to join as well. And uh, makes the ruby appear, then disappear. Think about it. The giants look to each other, nodding and grunting in satisfaction. The lead giant passes the diamonds on to another and says, It's better than nothing. The giants all nod, grunting their agreement. They then begin to head toward the prison camp. Gent sneaks ahead. Meanwhile, Connor stands before the dragon, who may or may not be named Cub. Hex has been thrown back 40 feet, but he's still in the scene. The dragon used its repulsion breath attack, but neither of them have taken damage as a result. Hex picks himself up. Connor reaches out a hand towards the dragon and says, Let me help you, Cub. Come, join us in Paylor's light. Connor moves up, ready to greater restoration the dragon. I say Connor must make a wisdom saving throw, also persuasion check with advantage. They get uh, 24 for the wisdom and 19 are persuasion. And he says, Cub, the dragon is quiet for a moment. Yes, he called me Cub. I was Cub. And then Connor casts Greater Restoration. And uh, I have him roll Persuade with advantage. He casts with Guidance, only gets a 15. Alex says, I think I've rolled above t 10 twice tonight, and they were both 20s. Oof. 
The dragon's eyes seem to clear and it growls. Connor must make a strength saving throw. He gets an 8 and Connor is blasted back 40 feet. The dragon raises itself up to its full height, spreading its wings in the darkness. What use have I for the light? The dragon cries out angrily. Hex and Connor may roll insight in addition to attempting further persuasion checks with advantage. For insight, Connor gets 8 and Hex gets 22. I say, so Hex is a bit too rattled after being thrown back to contemplate this, but to Hex, it seems Cub is much less restrained than he seemed to be before. Moreover, despite his fearsome display, that's the second time he's used the non-lethal repulsive breath rather than any alternatives. Meanwhile, Gent scouts ahead at the, as the scone giants stomp their way through the outpost. While they catch the attention of various figures around the outpost as they travel, it seems that most assume they've been ordered to some specific part of the camp and don't question it. Fire giants certainly mark them as they pass by, but they keep to their own charges and don't impede the stone giants at all. The slaves and azards that they see gives the stone giants little more than a glance. Evidently, the stone giants are exclusively moderated by the fire giants. Though Hex and Connor can faintly hear the distant approach of the stone giants' tread, their current predicament demands their full attention. Hex groans as he gets to his feet again and puts his hand over his pistol. Connor, though, will spring up and approach the dragon once again. The shadows blind you, child, and you cling to your prison. Surely you see the madness that has overtaken you. Gog would not wish to see you like this. Let me help you. Say, roll persuasion with advantage and probably guidance again. It gets a 30. The dragon is quiet and still. It simply observes Connor coldly. Paler's light is not something you must use, child. It is the environment that you require. You are a dragon, proud and strong, and skulking in the shadows does a great disservice to your race. Have you settled for being the boogie monster to these prisoners? Or would you stand free and seek vengeance against the ones who have stuck you here with their lot? I say another persuade with advantage and guidance. Gets the 26 and says, dodged a nat one there. The dragon straightened itself. It stretches and twists its neck as if enjoying the space after being confined for a long period of time. The dragon leaps into the air. The smoke is cast to the sides and the shadows enveloping the dragon seem less present than ever. The dragon gazes down on Connor with a sinister air. What do you want from me? The dragon hisses. He says, I do not want much, but your friend Gog misses you terribly. We've been sent to summon you. Would you go to him? He waits with an army to the north, and Connor casts Beacon of Hope on himself, the dragon, and Hex. I say one more persuasion with advantage and guidance, and he gets a 22. The dragon gazes around and says, free. Cub spreads his wings and soars into the air, roaming. I am free. Meanwhile, the stone giants arrive with Gent at the walls of the prison camp. The lead one points to the wall and says, this wall here? Hex watches him go, ha yeah, you sure are, dude. Uh, Connor, did you cure his insanity? Connor says, I I assume I did. And uh, then um, the gent commands the stone giants to begin the destruction of the uh, northernmost point close to the bridge on the wall. And I say, sure, the giants follow your instruction. You the boss. The leader says... The arranged, they arrange themselves along the wall to the north. They also bring, this also brings them out of line of sight of some suspicious-looking fire giants who had taken a moment to observe the scene. Here, the giant asks around, looking around. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, so they target the north wall of the prison camp. 
and position along the north wall. The lead giant begins by kicking the wall and yelling something in giant. The other giants join in, grabbing large stones from nearby to smash into the wall and using their chisels to chip away at critical points of the structure. It isn't long before the wall is breaking away and falling apart entirely. Damage cracks along the wall and causes the wall to fall all around the prison camp. Hex and Connor are actually pretty close to the north wall when it comes down so the, that the wall falls and your party is just partially separated by a ridge composed of rubble. Ah, excellent timing. Um, one of the giants stomps through the stomps through past the wall and kicks over one of the smokestacks. He chuckles and something, says something to his fellow stone giants. The frightened drought drones begin to disperse, unsure of which direction to head. Cat takes the opportunity to gather their attention and rally them to safe, rally them safely to her position amongst the destruction. Gent runs over and says, you're welcome, with a wink. Hex and Connor climb over the rubble to find Gent. Looks like she's been busy, Connor remarks. The drow begin making their way up the earthen ramp that leads out of the outpost to the undercat's direction. Uh, and I put up a quick picture indicating the direction of the ramp. But basically, um, there was a ramp leading out of sort of like the quarry-like layout of this uh, whole sort of outpost. Um, that allows the them to like scale out of the prison camp. Uh, back up to the overlooking position that they were at before. Fire giants are mobilizing in the distance to deal with the situation, but the stone giants laugh and roar expletives at them in giant, casting huge chunks of rock and debris at their former taskmasters. Hey, fellas, this may be our cue to skedaddle. And uh, Alex says, let's get up that Dark Soul-style Soul shortcut. And Hex and Connor move up the ramp. As they exit the camp, their immediate their attention is immediately drawn to the roar of a large vehicle coming up the near, nearest eastern ramp, leading out of the pit mine. Apparently, Val has taken back control of her supply truck. She rolls up the ramp, not slowing down, but popping up the window to yell, "Hitch a ride, quick! We're rolling the hell out of here ASAP!" The truck smashes through some tables and mining equipment, then into a small wooden barricade on one side of the ramp that leads up to the forest floor of the, from the prison camp. Last call for all passengers, Val shouts as she briefly reverses out of the, the debris to align the truck for a straight shot up the ramp and out of the outpost. Jen says, holy shit. Hex prepares a sweet-ass backflip onto the truck, then stops, sighs, and grabs Connor by the hand. Halfway dragging him, Hex jogs up to the truck and grabs a handhold. Uh, Jen and the drones still... Uh, Cat and the drones are still scattering. Some of the drones have already made progress up the ramp and they're just bolting for it, but some are taking their lead and hitching a ride. Gent makes sure they do whatever possible to let as many as, as they can escape. Generally, they all take off up the ramp and out of the outpost. Some of the drones scatter into the forest, while others stay with them on this truck, thrashing their way through the brush to the Draelic encampment. The stone giants follow, deterring any pursuing fire giants by hurling huge objects their way. It's a wild, bumpy ride, smashing through small trees and shrubs, grazing larger trees. When the truck finally stops at the Draelic camp, the trip has clearly taken its toll on the vehicle. But the back of the supply truck is intact, meaning that any supplies the enemy didn't have removed, uh, hadn't removed, are still making it to the army. When they return to the Draelic encampment to the northeast, they have enough time for a long rest before the battle begins. And I think that's where we'll break.
Right on. I, I'm not sure what other comments to add to that. Uh, pretty cool how all of this is coming together. What did you think of the, the test where it was like they had to get a chain? Basically what happened was the way it worked with that uh, dragon was they had to get like a chain of very high persuasion checks in order to like sort of negotiate with the dragon and like talk them down. Um, the more they failed, the more hostile the dragon would get. Thankfully, they rolled very well, so they only ever got the repulsive blast from the dragon that was non-lethal and just sort of, like, knocked them back. But what do you think of that? Well, Will that's you... not that that's not that dissimilar from, uh, from, is it persuasion? Just, like, uh, doing doing charisma-based checks to change the attitude of an NPC, right? Isn't that sort of the classic way where there are different levels of friendliness and hostility for NPCs in D&D, and then based on how well you roll at charisma diplomacy, this is what I'm thinking of, it was from 3.5. <clears throat> when you roll diplomacy, you could raise an NPC's friendliness towards you, right? Yeah, I suppose it kind of worked like a a chain it's, diplomacy role. Yeah, um, it's kind it's kind of like a, a a diplomacy skill challenge in a way, where you gotta you have to raise the dragon's attitude to a certain degree in order to achieve what you wanted, and you had to do that through a series of checks rather than just one. Sure, is a different way of doing things than Forge in the Dark, though. It's absolutely true. I don't know. I kind of. I don't know. Like I feel like I'm sort of the only person I know who uses skill challenges at all in my D&D games. Really? Most people I I, I mean, I don't I don't pull a skill checks. Skill checks, but not skill challenges, right? Like not not uh an encounter. They they're not always encounters like this one where you have to make a series of specific checks and like get x result on each one to get the the final results that they want you know the checks for sure everybody uses checks they're a critical component but the the skill challenge idea which i think was only really introduced in fourth edition and then kind of abandoned too i don't know if if it even persists it was just something that i i liked uh one of the few things i liked about 4e well i mean uh also I should say that that whole encounter is from Sith Morcane Unbound. Uh, the uh, trying to talk down a shadow dragon that is in a state of rage uh, in order to get them on your side for a coming battle. Do you use many skill challenges? Have you ever used many skill challenges? Do you even know what I'm talking about? I think so. Like where you just have like a sequence of skill checks, right? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, uh, the one of the things that people didn't like about them in 4th edition was that system just kind of handled them like a checklist, or it just sort of felt like players had to jump through hoops to complete a task. But uh, I, I use them in a way where I don't really, like, I, I use them 
for my own DM purposes. I don't really tell players when they're entering into a skill challenge. It's sort of like, you know, I know that they're going to have to do this one particular thing. Like with yours, they got to they gotta negotiate with a dragon. And uh, so I would just call for the rolls and note down what they got and then consult the little skill challenge that I'd put together. I don't know. I use them a lot. I use them a lot in my games, whether or not my players realize it. A uh, good, ex good example is like, uh, you know, if they got a, if they're on a ship at sea and it's a, the, the sea is raging and they, they're told that they got to go and uh, grab the, the ship's wheel to steady the ship on a, a in the middle of a storm well the skill challenge might be something like i'm thinking now I've, i'm back to thinking all in uh D, D 3.5 terms so forgive me if i if i use those but like first you would have them do a balance check to make sure they don't fall over as they get there and if they fail well that gives them a negative penalty to the next thing which is then they got to do a drive check because they got to steer the ship and so on and so forth uh, just sort of stringing them all together and having a, a condition or consequence that comes out of each check, succeed or fail. But I guess I, I don't know many other DMs that do it, so maybe... Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I, I can't think of many times that I've done... I feel like I have done those on occasion, but not often... And I think a large part of that comes down to the fact that I am like harvesting a lot of content from published modules and things. Yeah. And so it's if it's five E content, they're probably not doing that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Or they're only doing approximations of it. So, you were gonna talk about something called Wilderfeast. That's right, over in the danger room, we are going to talk about Wilderfeast, and I'm just going to give a, an overview of this one. I won't do a deep dive yet, unless something about this catches both of our fancy, and then we can explore it more on future episodes. But uh, the idea of Wilderfeast is that it's, it's, it's kind of Monster Hunter? You were saying it's kind of Monster Hunter? Um, Seems very Monster Hunter it's definitely definitely seems to be inspired by monster hunter i've never actually played by monster played monster hunter so i can't uh comment on it too much but the whole idea behind wilder i keep saying wilder feast it's wilder feast because the players the characters they assume the roles of wilders who are monster hunters and chefs who wield gargantuan kitchen implements and gain powerful mutations from each monster they eat Using these powers, they seek harmony between humanity and the wild. And uh, part of the reason I went on my prolonged ramble, pondering different systems and like the 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 overlap in Venn diagram circles of different D and or different RPG systems, is because uh, this one kind of borrows some elements from both uh, Blades in the Dark and D and D. I feel like, but mostly Blades in the Dark. And uh, so before I even get to sort of those aspects, the mechanics of it, I'll just talk a bit more about what this game is like. Um, much like Blades in the Dark, the game operates in phases, and the game is built around the party hunting monsters, uh, 
and getting into combat with the monsters, then cooking the monsters using specific recipes that are laid out or creating their own, and uh, and then by eating those monsters, traits that the monsters had can be taken on by the character. So like you eat, you eat a monster that can fly, your character might then be able to fly after they eat that monster. And that's the, the game progression. Like the characters don't level up, they just keep on getting more powerful by attacking different monsters and then cooking them according to different recipes and buffing up their characters based on the monsters that they kill and the recipes they use. Um, Wilder Feast has a world map. The world is called the One Land, and it's like a, a distant, distant, distant future uh, described as post-post-apocalyptic. It's a, a supercontinent, uh, both familiar and fantastic, beautiful and harsh, where food is magic. And uh, the One Land is populated by monsters primarily, and humans are like the burgeoning new species. They've only been around for maybe a thousand years or so. So the the megafauna of the world has just like overrun everything. The, they're sort of like dinosaurs, but dinosaurs plus, even more so. And uh, humans have come along and uh, started forming their own society, but in doing so, they've unleashed a virus on the land, which a virus called the frenzy and the frenzy is making the animals go into a frenzy go crazy and so an interesting aspect of this that i like it's sort of like uh, they wanted to do this wilder feast you know kill a monster and eat it uh, rpg but they wanted to make sure that the vegetarians and vegans playing might not object and so the idea is that the party only kills monsters that are infected by the frenzy virus so they are they're sort of doing a public service at the same time uh, they're they're quelling the spread of this virus by hunting and eating the monsters and uh, humans are apparently immune to the frenzy just as a, a little plot convenience there and uh, so that's sort of like the overview of this. Do you have any first impressions on this, Tom? Does this sound kind of cool to you? I like the idea behind the setting. I mean, yeah, again, it's uh, it interests me about as much as Monster Hunter does. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Which is like, I don't know, it's kind of cool. Uh, I like the whole food thing and all that. Um you, you were saying you knew something about this system, though, like the mechanics of it? Yeah, so there are a few, a few mechanical things that I, I like about this. Um, a, lot of there, a lot of these are, of course, food-themed. Uh, so, um, for example, the background of each wilder is described as uh, they have a three-course background. Your backstory, your initiation and drive framed through food. So what meal defined your childhood? What meal made you a wilder? And what meal do you crave the most? That kind of thing. The classes are again sort of based around ideas uh, to do with food. 
Um, so the classes in this are called specialties. Each wilder has a specialty, and your choice of specialty indicates your character's expertise in hunting and caring for members of uh, Monster's lineage. And so the specialties include things like roaster, fisher, butcher, gardener. Um, the Something I, I do like about this one that uh, feels like it, it definitely has one foot in D&D is... Uh, like combat is a thing in this system uh, tactical combat to a degree it's like it's, you don't get a full battle map but like your distance from the monster you're attacking uh, does factor into it they give you a, a funny little I don't know what you'd call it it's like a little planchette sort of thing if you look at their kickstarter which we'll have to link to is that the combat uh, orbit yeah the combat orbit you see that yeah, it so, reminds it, me. It's uh, almost like a. It's it's shaped almost like a the Wi-Fi icon, right? Where it's like a circle with these these sort of uh, quarter circles radiating out from it. Yeah, Scion used to have a really weird initiative system that, like, you put yourselves on like a wheel or something. Oh, interesting. That I didn't know. Um, yeah, I never really used it. Yeah, the combat orbit is what I'm talking about. Uh, if you look at the the bundle, just as an aside, if you look at the bundle on Kickstarter, like you get some cool accessories and things here. Cards, there's a cookbook, the map of the world looks really nice. You get custom dice with it. Uh, you get that combat orbit layout thing. You also get a, a clock that sort of ticks along progress similar to the season clock and teeth. And uh, something I appreciate about all of this package is... Uh, the people publishing it, uh, the publishers are called Horrible Guild. Uh, they started with board games. So there's a lot of like board game design influence that went into the design of Wilder Feast. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, also to give credit, the author of uh, Wilder Feast is Casey Shi who has worked on a bunch of other stuff and even uh, been a, a voice, done voiceover production on stuff like Destiny and Guild Wars. And then uh, the head of RPG for it is uh, Federico Corbettacacci, and uh, he has some background with video games and RPGs and stuff. So just to credit the creators there. Uh, but I, I appreciate that they've applied board game design aesthetics to this package. Uh, really does sort of feel like the halfway point between a board game and an RPG. It even comes in a box. Um, so just talking about all of these different mechanics, here's the thing that I that struck me the most that I liked. Um, the instead of attributes and I don't know what you like in in d and d, it's attributes. And then I guess modifiers uh, or, or saving throws are sort of the, the offshoot or just skills, I guess. Uh, and then in something like teeth, you've got the the actions and then the... Is it attributes under that? Uh, no, a actions are under attributes. Attributes and then actions, right. So in this one, you have... Uh, styles and skills and the styles function similarly to uh, the attributes in D&D &D, and then the skills are sort of like the attributes in uh, in teeth so the styles are the the umbrella terms or I guess the styles you could say are are similar to the actions 
in uh, in teeth. But the the whole idea is that the styles are the umbrella terms, and then you have skills, which are the things that you can do with your styles. And uh, the reason I like this is that there's this really intuitive system at play here where when you want to do something, you specify the style and then the skill. And between those two words, you create, uh, you create the full action. So for example, if I wanted to search as a skill, I want the action that my character takes is gonna be a search. Well, the style that I could apply to it, I could say, you know, precise. If I really wanna look around, I wanna do a precise search. But maybe if I'm checking for traps, it would be more like a tricky search, tricky being another one of the styles. Uh, I like how it's just, it, it sort of, it creates the, the full action for you as you say it. I want to precisely grab that thing. Uh, I, wanna, I want to uh, impress that guy uh, by flexing my, my, my muscles in a mighty display. Mighty being the style, display being the skill. Um, I just think that, uh, that above all these other things, I think is really cool. It's a, a neat sort of idea. Um, oh, and, uh, I had mentioned combat before with this, the combat orbit thing. Uh, another aspect of combat is that your character has basically just like one, one primary attack where each wilder has a tool which is this enormous kitchen implement uh, to produce mind-boggling amounts of food. Uh, there are six different types of tool that you can choose from. Cleaver, pan, mitts, spit, torch, and twine. And they define a wilder's class, which is their, their training, their disposition, and their approach to being a wilder. Someone with a cleaver might be a bit more hands-on, for example, than someone with mitts. Um, and then... In addition, you know, we've got some, in addition to that, talking a bit more about combat. Uh, combat, sorry, let me just find the section on combat here. Uh, the combat, it's described as a, a versatile style of combat that blends puzzle solving with action strategy. Uh, every pack of wilders can take a different approach to the hunt. Will you split in groups and attract the monster's fury to expose its weak spots? Or will you growl at his face and go full frontal? Each creature gains three actions at the start of their turn during combat, which they can spend on the following activities. So it's a case where you get three, it's almost like XCOM, where you have, or I guess it's like D&D, you have X number of actions and then you can choose between these different options. You can attack, brace, move, taunt, prepare, eat or retreat and each of those actions has a specific thing you know taunt attracts the monster's attention eat allows you to recover stamina by eating a snack things along those that those lines and then the combat the combat orbit the idea is that the monster is at the center and then you move uh if you move you know you can move forward towards the monster or back uh, wilders spend combat between zero strides, where you're right on top of the monster, and then four strides, where you just barely register as a threat, and you can use the, the little, little placard thing that they provide to track all of that. 
and of course there are there are things like you know favorable terrain and stuff that can that can affect this and then after you've killed the monster then you can make some food uh, when you have a cooking opportunity you can such as when you camp you and your packmates can make a meal. You select ingredients, determine how much stamina the meal restores, typically one for each ingredient used, and then you determine the meal's effect, choosing among, uh, choosing among those of the ingredients you used. Meals can be served fresh or saved for later, and once you cook the meal, you gotta describe it. Tell everyone enough about the dish's flavor, texture, or appearance, they can taste it. Uh, and then in addition to this, other things that are gonna come out with this are uh, the bestiary with over 30 monsters. Uh, all the artwork I want to note looks great. I love the just the straight up look of all the art. Just this great, uh, if you look on the, the different tiers, uh, the reward tiers for Kickstarter, the second one is meal and it shows a, a wilder with like huge oven mitts on. I love that look, love the gigantic oven mitts. Uh, the game also comes with a travel guide, so you can explore the one land and the Sen coast with detailed maps and extensive tables of cooking ingredients. There are four standalone scenarios that are also playable as a campaign, and it, the whole thing comes with, you know, invaluable advice for running your own game. The, the GM in this is called The Guide. Um, I think this is a pretty cool package. Uh, I was mostly attracted to the look. And uh, I like the sort of hybrid approach between uh, like D&D &D or an RPG and a board game. I like all these like tokens and stuff, custom dice. I just thought there were a lot of neat ideas here. I don't know if it's one that I'm, I'm going to dive into immediately, but there's a lot of stuff that I like here. Oh, and one last uh, shout out is the test resolution mechanic chart. <coughs> You can really see the board game uh, instruction manual influence in the, uh, the test resolution mechanic with the step-by-step. -step. One, decide the style and skill. Two, create a dice pool <clears throat> based on the points in your style. Uh, then you choose your action die. Is it going to be a D8 or a D20? And you remove a D6 from your pool. Then you roll the die. You get plus one for each level in skill on any die, and then you check for success. Uh, it's just like, like it would be great to have that printed out, and, you know, it's the kind of thing like, <clears throat> like a hardcore DM might have uh, that printed out and stuck on their fridge just as a handy guide to refer to. So, yeah, that's... For your uh, DM screen. Your yeah, exactly, screen. and... The package comes with, a, I guess it's a guide screen, but yeah, a GM screen as well is included. Handy stuff. So I think this is a cool product. There are a lot of ideas I like here. Um, I sense that once again, you're like, yeah, okay, it's all right. But but nothing about this is grabbing you the way like Wicked Ones did. Now, I'm not going to rush out and back this Kickstarter or anything. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna wait and uh, see some reviews on the the full finish thing. But I guess one last note on this is that uh, on the Kickstarter page they are offering up a free quick start guide, so you can get a taste of the game itself. So you can, yeah, you can download a sample and uh, see if it appeals to you. 
Um, I have a, I've read through it, but I, I haven't like read all of it yet. And I'm probably going to do that. There's enough here that I'm interested to see uh, what else might be contained here. What else is, is offered up by Wilder Feast. All right. Is that it for our episode? I think that's it. This has been episode uh, 170, recorded on the 21st of November 2023 uh, of Comparing Campaign. If you want to get in touch with us, soon we post new episodes or follow us, check us out on Facebook, Comparing Campaign on Facebook. Or if you want to see our show notes and supplemental materials, check us out on uh, comparingcampaign.wordpress.com. Is that all right? Uh, eat that monster, get a mutation. Ah, uh, not me. Oh, who are you kidding? You'd eat a monster.